Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and this week we're bringing you profiles of Californians wrestling with the idea of home. From a Bay Area family whose home is making them sick. And we flipped the, the couch over and everything was green, green and black. I couldn't believe it. To a mom in Fresno living in motels and cars with a new baby on the way. If you don't pay rent tomorrow, you're on the street. You can't be on the street with the baby. And a family who's had it with L.A. rents, so they're leaving California for good. I don't know. It's been a good run. Uh, I'm going to miss it, for sure. But I'm going to go buy a house. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start our show today with a portrait of a mom in Fresno who's homeless. Her name is Amanda, and we're not using her last name because she doesn't want people to know she's a sex worker addicted to meth and heroin. Reporter Rachel Cassandra spent nine months interviewing her and documenting her life in a kind of audio diary. By the way, just a warning, this story touches really candidly on addiction and sexual themes. I'm sitting with Amanda in my car on a warm night in Fresno. This is where we do many of our interviews. She's telling me about the first time she tried heroin. It was three years ago when she was 28. Her boyfriend had just died in a motorcycle accident. I felt really, really good. Like, I was really relaxed, calm. Everything was just like, you know, not a worry in the world. Amanda has been anxious and depressed for much of her life. She was sexually abused as a child. She's been using methamphetamine since she was 14. It's really hard for people to understand why people who are addicted to drugs can't stop. So is there anything you can say to help people understand, like, what it's like? It controls you. The drug controls you. Like, I I really can't. I'm not really good at answering that question because I ask myself that. Why couldn't I just stop? People are going to want to, like, visualize you. So what do you look like? Um, I'm 5'4", about 131 pounds. Um, Bluish gray eyes. Uh, curly hair. Mm, I'm chubby. I'm, I have freckles. Amanda has the names of her three children tattooed on her ankle. Uh, 
It's been a couple weeks since I first met Amanda. She takes me to the motel where she's been living now. Where's my gallery? Amanda's sitting on the bed of her motel room, showing me pictures on her cracked smartphone. There are a few burn holes in the blanket. And on the side table, there's a plastic cup with cigarette butts floating in brown water. Look at that's my baby when she was real, real little. That's my son. Aww. And that's them now. That's your 11-year-old? Oh, no. That's, that's my 12-year-old and 4-year-old. And 4-year-old. <sighs> he looks just like me. It blows me away. I'm like, my mom took pictures of me in my car. <laughs> So your mom excited to be a grandma again? Uh-huh. Yeah, she is, but she isn't. Like, at first she was, like, you know, pissed off. She's still a little bit pissed off. Pissed off because Amanda is pregnant again. And she's homeless and a sex worker. Her children live with their fathers. She still has legal custody of them, but she doesn't feel like she can take care of them now. While she was visiting one day, Amanda says her four-year-old daughter rifled through her makeup bag where Amanda had stashed two dirty rigs or syringes. I said, Ava, you did not touch these, okay, baby? They're really sharp. She goes, I already did. It's not sharp. It didn't hurt me. Three days later, I get a phone call from my baby's dad. And I go, what happened? His mom was watching the baby. And she had a rig in her makeup bag. Her little makeup bag I gave her. Because she wanted to be like her mommy. Because <laughs> I had one of mine. She wanted one in hers. With this pregnancy, Amanda didn't find out till she was 19 weeks along. And the OB was a little upset. She gave me a referral to get on methadone because they said already if the baby tests positive for heroin, they're going to take it, which I don't want. What Amanda means is that if the baby is born and tests positive for illegal drugs, Child Protective Services, or CPS, will get involved. They could place the baby with a foster family. So her plan is to get on methadone and get off drugs before her baby is born. My mom made, gave me a reality check on my birthday the other day. She said, you can't take care of this baby. If you don't pay rent tomorrow, you're on the street. You can't be on the street with the baby. And that's totally true. Like, I don't know what to even do with the baby anymore. Amanda is almost eight months pregnant. She's been taking methadone for a month. It's an opioid considered safer than street opiates. But Amanda's still using heroin, and she's still making money through sex work. Right now, she's in bed in her motel room because she's had high blood pressure, and she's been bleeding. Like, there could be something horribly wrong with my baby right now, and I don't even, I'm so scared to go to the hospital because I, you know what I mean, I'll have drugs in my system. But I don't want them to take her because of that. But I don't want her to die or something. You know what I mean? I don't want... I shouldn't be bleeding right now. At all. Amanda is really scared of going to the doctor. She doesn't want them to induce labor because the baby would test positive for drugs. Finally, I convince her to go. The doctor says the bleeding is likely the placenta separating from the uterus. Maybe because of the heroin. Amanda will need to come in twice a week for fetal monitoring. It's a couple weeks later. Amanda's lost some weight. She's continuing to use heroin. Amanda calls it black, short for black tar heroin. Amanda tells me how the baby reacts to the drugs. If I do a shot of black, She's like, woo, like crazy moving, like 
It's sad, but it's true. Like, she has to have it. Like, you could tell it makes her feel better. Throughout the pregnancy, Amanda talks about the baby needing heroin. And in a way, it's true. At this point, the biggest risk to the fetus is not heroin itself, but heroin withdrawal. The baby could be born premature or even die. Amanda is eight and a half months pregnant. She's having contractions, and she and her boyfriend twin are at the hospital. That's okay. I'll open your legs a little bit wider for me, and I'll help you with this. Amanda's birth is progressing as normal. Immediately, the nurses put the baby on a scale. Amanda names her Macy. She's five pounds eight ounces. They ink her feet with black and stamp them on the birth certificate. Baby came out healthy. Her lungs are okay, heart's okay, belly's soft, <laughs> whatever that means, that's what the doctor said. Macy is staying in the hospital's NICU for a few days. Amanda can hold her and care for her there. On day three, Macy starts having symptoms of withdrawal from heroin, spitting up and shaking. The doctors start Macy on methadone treatment, which is normal for babies born dependent on opiates. In family court, the judge orders Macy to stay with a foster family until Amanda can prove that she's ready to be a stable parent. In the meantime, she'll have drug testing and supervised visits with Macy. Macy is two and a half weeks old and is living with her foster family. I meet Amanda at her motel room. Right away, she goes into the bathroom and starts preparing a shot of heroin. Where's the lighter? I started missing. God dang, it hurts. And I'm shaking really bad. I'm nervous watching Amanda shoot up, but I've been carrying naloxone since I met her. That's a treatment for opiate overdose, just in case. After Amanda puts the needle away, she tells me her milk has come in. It was like pouring, and they were just really, really painful. They were just sad, not, you know, it's something that had to deal with being a mother. I miss her so much. Amanda's allowed to visit Macy twice a week for only an hour. The visits are supervised by a social worker at a CPS office. I talked to her afterwards. What did you do with Macy? Held her and fed her and changed her poopy diaper. She pooped. <laughs> and what was that like? Oh, it was okay. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know. Um, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, it went very, really fast. Macy is still taking methadone, but being weaned off slowly. 
Amanda is waiting for her next court date, where the judge will order her to go into rehab. When that happens, CPS will cover the costs. Amanda has until August to start making major changes in her life, or Macy's foster family can adopt her. For The California Report, I'm Rachel Cassandra in Fresno. You're listening to the California Report magazine, and today we're bringing you stories of Californians grappling with the idea of home. What does it mean when the home you live in is poisoning your kid? Dozens of neighborhoods in California have higher rates of lead poisoning than Flint, Michigan. But in California, the main problem isn't drinking water, it's lead paint. And in the Bay Area, the lead problem goes hand-in-hand with high rents. KALW reporters Angela Johnston and Marissa Ortega-Welch introduce us to a family whose lives were upended when their kid got sick. Angela and I meet the Sharif family at their hummus factory in San Leandro, just south of Oakland. Yeah, when we get there, Salika Sharif opens up the walk-in freezer. So we have like artichoke, hummus, this is habanero hummus, which is really spicy, you like it? And chips too, piles of ripped pita bread sizzle in the deep fryer. Workers scoop the chips into bags to send to farmers markets around the Bay Area. This is truly a family business. Sulika's from Djibouti, her husband Tarek's from Tunisia, and their three-year-old daughter, Kaukeb, was born here. She treats the factory like her playground, running through the parking lot out back. Let's go! Your shoes, my God! The family used to live in a studio apartment down the street from the factory. It was a good deal. They paid $900 a month when many studios in this area go for more than $1,500. Things were going well for them until three years ago. Everyone started to get sick. One day I got sick. For three days I was sick in the house. Um, I couldn't even move. He had a really bad lingering cold that he just couldn't shake. Sulika and Kaukeb got it too. And Kaukeb, who was just a baby when it started, just never seemed to get well. She was sick for about uh, four months, six months, cold and sneezing. It only seemed to go away when they left the house, like when they went on vacation. Then, one day, Tarek realized he couldn't find his wedding ring. They tore apart the house looking for it, peering down the sink. And we flipped the the couch over and everything was green, green and black. Mold everywhere. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I I was in a shock. He says rainwater that collected on the roof seeped inside their walls and onto the floor under the couch. The mold was disgusting, but they were about to discover something worse. I took my daughter to the hospital just to check her out to see if she had anything. The doctors found the whole family had been exposed to mold. They ran another test on Kalkeb, too. That's when we realized that she had lead. Honestly, the only thing I could think of came from the apartment. The lead levels in Kalkeb's blood were extremely high. She stopped eating first. She start, She was always uh, crying for no reason. That unusual behavior terrified Sulika and Tarek. I blame myself. I said it's my fault. I thought I didn't take care of her and, I, and she ate something that did not pay attention to it. The doctor faxed Kaukeb's high results to the county. But by the time the county inspectors got to the apartment, the Sharifs say their landlord had painted over the mold and old lead paint. 
Painting overlead does contain it, so the inspectors couldn't see it. But the county concluded Kalkeb had gotten sick when mold ate away at that old lead paint. And the painting was, deteriori- uh, was deteriorating. Yeah, deteriorating. And Those lead particles made their way into the air and on the floor where Kalkeb played. The county's public health nurse encouraged them to do whatever they could to keep their daughter away from the lead. So they moved out temporarily, staying with relatives while their landlord made repairs. Or so he said. But as soon as they moved back in... The same problem started again. After the cleanup, Cowcab's lead levels should have gone down, but they didn't, and the whole family started to get colds. Tarek says the mold had come back, so he called the landlord. I took him inside the house and I showed him, you know, the same problem again. And the landlord's solution? He wanted to move me to another apartment. A neighboring unit in the building. And I told him, before I could move to another apartment, I'm going to bring in a, a whole team and test the place. Um, and then I'll move in. If it's safe, I'll move in. And, and I think that's what actually triggered everything. Um, he evicted us right, right after that. Tarek claims the landlord evicted his family because they started to put up a fight. They sued for wrongful eviction. The same day he, he kicked us out, he, he had a, another family move in, into the apartment itself. He didn't even clean it. He didn't do a thing. The lawyer for the Shreef's landlord says he can't comment while the case is being litigated, but his client categorically denies the Shreef's claims. Tarek says he's worried someone else will get sick living in that building. I know my neighbors, they're afraid because the rent is still kind of low in there, so they don't want to move out, even though they know there's all these problems. Housing advocates say this is an alarming trend in the Bay Area, clusters of refugees and immigrants in unsafe housing. They call it predatory habitability, with the landlords as the predators. For families that do manage to move out, sometimes the only affordable choice is a suburb on the edge of the Bay Area or the Central Valley. Or some families actually choose to go to a homeless shelter where their chances of getting affordable and lead-safe housing goes up. The Sharifs couldn't find anything affordable near the hummus shop. So they moved in with Tarek's brother and his family in Milpitas, a 40-minute drive away. Their rent nearly quadrupled, but it's safe. Tarek says he had the house tested for lead as soon as he moved in. And more importantly, he says, Cow Cub's acting like herself again. How old are you? How old are you in, in English? How old are you? Three, mama. No. 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 Three. Her lead levels have gone down significantly, too. She's fine. She's eating well. She's playing. She's 100% healthy. And I'm happy. The Sharifs were lucky. They had a safety net, some savings, and family they could move in with. But in California, some 8 million homes were built before lead paint was banned in the late 70s. Millions of chances that the place a kid lives could poison them. For The California Report, I'm Marissa Ortega-Welch. And I'm Angela Johnston in San Leandro. That story is from a series that originally aired on KALW. You can find a link to the whole series at californiareport.org. For so many of us Californians, the idea of home is tangled up with the idea of paying high rent or an exorbitant mortgage. The skyrocketing cost of housing means more people are leaving than moving here from other states. Reporter John Corley caught up with one family, calling it quits 
on the Golden State. It's 65 and sunny on a Saturday afternoon in the trendy Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. People are enjoying walks in Griffith Park and sipping coffee at outdoor cafes. But up the steps of a nearby apartment, the Colby family is rushing to get out of here. What are you packing here? Uh, yeah, books. Hi, my name is Evan Colby, and I am in the process of moving from Los Angeles, California, to Lansing, Michigan. Hi, my name is Anna Colby. They're busy packing up their apartment. Could you get some of those books and put them in this box? They're about to say goodbye to Los Angeles. It's a place they've called home for seven years. Both are originally from the Midwest. Anna moved out to attend graduate school at USC. And we dated long distance for a year, and then he moved out here. The Colbys have enjoyed their life in California. They'll miss walks up to Griffith Park, adventures to places like Yosemite and Joshua Tree, and of course... Food! I mean, there are probably a dozen restaurants in our neighborhood that are walkable that are going to be better than anything we'll find. They'll also miss their apartment. And you have a little, what they call a peekaboo view of downtown. But a new reality recently set in for them. The challenge is that it's only one bedroom and there are three of us, so. But really, once we decided to have a family, that was kind of the, at that point it was like, all right, you know, we've had our fun. It's time to find a place where we can actually afford to live. The average price for a house in Los Feliz, 1.6 million. Even though they both have college degrees and full-time jobs, a dream of being a homeowner here is out of reach. They also have concerns about LA's poor air quality, especially for their baby. More because of her, but I mean, me, me too. I know it's not a good thing long-term to be exposed to. It's okay. They already had one air purifier to filter out LA's notorious smog. But when the fires hit this past December... We actually had ash that we could see one day coming down, and we thought, oh, we better have one a little bit. Fast forward 10 days from when we first met. Anna's flown out already, and Evan is making final preparations to drive across country. I was thinking about leaving last night. His car is filled to the brim with things like clothes, photos, and personal documents. Check out this truck see what's happening back here. Dear God. It's also not exactly a car that can fit a lot of stuff. What are you, what are you driving right here? Prius. But first, he has to fuel up before leaving town. Coffee. We're at a cafe called Brew, just two blocks from his apartment. He's already getting nostalgic for L.A. Just the, the food in the city is so amazing. The San Gabriels are right there. And those hikes we used to do like every other weekend before the baby. And those are some of the best memories I have of being in California. All caffeinated. It's time for... All right, final walkthrough? Final walkthrough. He checks the kitchen. Get up there. All right, man. We're good to go. Close the rest of these blinds. He locks the door and puts his keys through the mail slot. That's it. I ask him if he has any parting words for California. Oh man, I don't know. It's been a good run. Uh, I'm gonna miss it for sure. But um, I'm gonna go buy a house. And just like that, Evan's California dream ends as he rides off in his Prius, another resident lost to a land of cheaper living. A few weeks later, Evan and Anna are getting used to their new life in suburban Lansing, Michigan. It's kind of weird. You know, it's obviously saving us a lot of money, but it's also like we're already missing a lot of things from California. Like what? Pretty much everything other than expense and weather. Evan says they've had second thoughts about leaving L.A. We've looked at each other a couple times and said, where are we? Hello. Hi, Anna. Hi, John. How are you? She says there have been positive things. In L.A., they paid more than $2,000 for a one-bedroom. 
In Lansing, they got a three-bedroom townhouse for $1,300, and she's sleeping better because they have another room for the baby. But sometimes at the end of the day, when I sit down on the couch and I, I, it's just almost like this longing for L.A. and for really our neighborhood in L.A. and just like almost being able to feel like I could step outside and, you know, take that walk around the neighborhood we used to take. The Colbys are among many people who have thought about giving up on the California dream. And now that they've done it, they're having lingering doubts. I don't know if we'll ever, ever know if it's the right decision. For the California Report, I'm John Corley in Los Angeles. That story's part of a collaboration with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Working with us here on the California Report magazine, students spent a semester examining what the California dream means to Angelinos from different walks of life. We'll be bringing you more of those stories in the coming weeks. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Rancho Cucamonga. For our series, A Place Called What? We've been asking you for your ideas about California places with unusual names. Monica Barron sent us a note about Rancho Cucamonga in San Bernardino County, a city she called home for many years. She told us that flaming hot Cheetos were invented in Rancho Cucamonga after a janitor who worked in the Frito-Lay factory there took some Cheetos home and coated them with chili. But how did Rancho Cucamonga get its name? Well, for that, we reached out to Jennifer Dickerson, who works for the San Bernardino County Museum. Rancho Cucamonga is actually a really bustling and vibrant city, and it has a really long and rich history. It's um, nestled beautifully at the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. Native Americans have been in this area for thousands of years, and they are actually the original inhabitants of the area that is now Rancho Cucamonga. Around 1200 AD, the Cucamongan Native Americans established a settlement. They uh, were a part of the Tongva Native peoples. So the name Cucamonga actually derives from these people, and the name itself has had various spellings throughout history, but it's always been pronounced Cucamonga. The Spanish soldier and explorer Gaspar de Portola came into the Cucamonga area in the 18th century, and then it was incorporated into the Spanish mission system. In 1821, Mexico won its independence from Spain, and in the 1830s, the missions were secularized. So as a result, the lands that all the missions owned and encompassed were parceled off into what they called ranchos. In 1839, the Rancho Cucamonga was 13,000 acres. It was in a really prime location because not only was it in a good region, but it was also along the old Spanish trail. And it was on the road that led from Los Angeles to the Mission San Gabriel to San Bernardino. It's really built up in the last um, couple of decades. It's a wonderful city. Keep sending us your ideas for California places with unusual names. You can drop us a note at calreport at kqed.org.
And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering from Howard Gelman. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our web producer. And Nadine Sabai is our intern. Special thanks this week to Sandy Tolan and Karen Lowe at USC. Our team also includes Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Have a great weekend. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Artist Works. Jazz players can learn from internationally recognized artists Martin Taylor, John Petitucci, Peter Erskine, and more at artistworks.com slash jazz. And the California Healthcare Foundation, helping low-income Californians get the health care they need on the web at chcf.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You've got special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.